4: From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on form, the U.S. Supreme Court on Friday said the abortion pill mifepristone would remain available while a case challenging it moves through the lower courts. But the legal fight against the FDA's approval of mifepristone is moving fast and could end up before the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade. We take a closer look this hour at what's next for the medication that's commonly used to end early pregnancies or treat miscarriages, what's next for other FDA-approved treatments, depending on how the case goes, and where abortion access now stands. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Advocates for reproductive rights say the fight for abortion access or safe miscarriage treatment is far from over, even after the U.S. Supreme Court said Friday that the abortion pill mifepristone would remain available in states where it's legal as a challenge to the drug moves through the courts. We take a closer look this hour at what's happened since a Texas judge this month attempted to revoke the FDA's approval of mifepristone and the prospects for abortion access in California and the nation. Joining us is Shafali Luthra, health reporter covering the intersection of gender and health care for the 19th, an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting on gender, politics, and policy. Shafali, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thank you for having me.
4: Mary Ziegler is also with us, professor of law at UC Davis. Her book is Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement, and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Mary Ziegler, glad to have you back as well. Thanks for having me. So, Shivali, I want to start with you. Just update us, remind us what the Supreme Court's decision Friday effectively did.
3: The Supreme Court's decision lets us stay where things are in states where abortion is legal and where access to medication abortion is legal. What has been true remains true. You can get a medication abortion using mifepristone and mesoprostol, a highly effective two-medication regimen that most of the time will successfully and very safely complete a preg- terminate a pregnancy, excuse me. And this has become a practice able to be given over telemedicine very safely as well, which has allowed mm-hmm. people to get abortions from the comfort of their home without having to travel to a clinic, which can be quite far, can have wait times, particularly in states where we've seen large surges in out-of-state patients. And so largely what this does is for now, if you've are if you been getting medication abortions, if this is something that you seek, you can continue to get so. But it leaves open the possibility that even a year from now, thinking about the timeline of how courts work, that could change and people could lose access to, if not mifepristone, at the very least, mifepristone under the scientifically backed, very safe and effective regimen that we are used to having it in.
4: Yes, this case is still very much alive and very much moving quickly. Mary Ziegler, I'm curious, what struck you about the Supreme Court's decision? Were you surprised by it?
5: Um, not, not in a way. I mean, I didn't know what to think. Um, and obviously, I, I also should say we should cautious, we should be cautious about how much to read into the court's decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we know is that two justices publicly dissented from the decision. Um, we don't know if more were opposed. We know that enough justices voted to stay the Fifth Circuit's ruling and freeze things in place. So access to Mifepristone is is, uh, the same, but we don't know how many justices exactly were were against that. And this is an early stage of the litigation. But the fact that this even happened, I think was a relief. But I wasn't entirely surprised, notwithstanding how conservative the court is, just because this case itself has so many procedural defects. So even a court invested in rolling back access to abortion more might not have wanted to use this case to do it, simply because it it seemed hard to argue that the plaintiffs had the standing to sue, for example, or that they brought this case in a timely manner because Mifepristone was approved in 2000, which is almost a quarter century ago at this point. So there were these procedural defects that might have given the justices pause, no matter how conservative they are.
4: Yes, it is interesting. Well, as you say, there were two justices, Thomas and Alito, who dissented from the decision uh, by the Supreme Court, at least, to allow Mifepristone to remain where it was before this Texas judge tried to suspend it Um so to allow it to remain available in states where it's legal, it's also interesting that Alito, who was the only one who actually wrote the reason that he was dissenting from the rest of the justices, um, wrote wrote a reasoning that didn't even go after the merits of the case. And you attribute that to the fact that you say there were all these defects related to the case itself.
5: Yeah, essentially the ability to bring the case. I mean, there were <laughs> there were defects in the substance of the case too, in the sense that. The, the case was essentially inviting judges to second guess the FDA's very careful, very lengthy scientific evaluation of mifepristone, and to do so with, you know, without really any kind of institutional competence to make that kind of scientific evaluation, and to do so when there was no real new evidence to suggest that the FDA had, had got something wrong. Many of the studies that the plaintiffs invoked were studies that the FDA has heard before or considered previously. So there were problems with the the substance as well as the procedure here. But given who's on the Supreme Court, I'm not sure those substantive issues would have been enough. But if the plaintiffs simply don't have standing to be in court in the first place, even a really conservative justice might think, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna get into this one, you know, yeah. I'm going to wait another, let let the anti-abortion movement fight another day with a better case, which I think may be what we're going to see here.
4: Right. And just to remind listeners, who did bring the case? It certainly wasn't people who were effectively harmed by taking the drug itself.
5: No, right. So just to give you a sense of why this was a stretch, the, the group was a group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, which is a group of anti-abortion physicians. The lawyers were um, the kind of Christian right powerhouse, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and the plaintiff's argument for standing was essentially not that they had any patients currently saying they'd been hurt by mifepristone. They couldn't find a single one. Instead, they were saying it's inevitable in the future that we will have a patient harmed by mifepristone. And in the meantime, we're also harmed because we have to advocate against mifepristone and use our resources in time for that as opposed to something else. Yeah. So you had one claim that's very speculative and another claim that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Essentially, any you're unhappy about something and you have to complain about it, you can sue, which would mean we could all sue about everything all the time. So these are not the kinds of arguments for standing that courts usually listen to.
4: Yeah, but they, they did listen to this. Even the Fifth Circuit listened to this. Shafali, can you... Just uh, remind us of two things. One was that I guess it's important to remember that this case was brought to this appointed, uh, this Trump-appointed judge in part because I think the anti-abortion movement, and it's been widely reported as well, felt that they would get a favorable ruling on this, even though the case isn't so great. <laughs>
3: This judge is known for his opposition to abortion rights. Um, This is something he has spoken about, written about, that is known to his family and friends as has been covered quite extensively in the media. We can also look at his previous rulings. And I think a really important one is his ruling on the Title 10 program, which is family planning clinics that serve largely low-income people. And he is the same judge who ruled in Texas that minors seeking family planning services contraception from title X clinics need parental approval first. That's quite different from what we have accepted to be the case for minors getting access to medical care. And it's one of those many clues that we have and have had for a while that if there was a judge willing to roll back abortion rights, roll back access to abortion medications, this might be that judge. And another example of that, of course, is the language he used in his ruling. Last month, right? Just thinking about using very particular words that are so steeped in the anti abortion movement, right? Talking about these unborn lives and abortionists instead of talking about medical providers.
4: Yeah, abortionists, unborn humans. And of course, as you say, he suspends the FDA's approval of mifepristone. It goes to the Fifth Circuit after the Biden administration appeals that ruling. What does the Fifth Circuit decide, Shefali?
3: The Fifth Circuit sort of walked back what we saw from Texas reverted us to the 2016 regulations for mithopristone, which if enforced would be quite restrictive compared to what we are used to now and compared to what the evidence supports. Mithopristone with misoprostol is very effective in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. The WHO in some cases actually recommends it even a little bit later than that. But this would have taken mifepristone, only allowing it to be used up to seven weeks of pregnancy, which is quite early. Many people are still figuring out they're pregnant, still figuring out if they want an abortion at that point. Mm -hmm. It also would have taken telemedicine off the table. And there is a possibility that it would have revoked the approval of the generic version of mifepristone produced by a company called GenBioPro because that version wasn't approved until 2019.
4: Yeah. So essentially, Mayor Ziegler, the Fifth Circuit allows a lot of very important pieces of the Texas judge's ruling to remain in place. Again, the Biden administration appeals. And then this is what was before the Supreme Court, which effectively stayed what the Texas judge did. I guess one of the things that I am really curious about, though, is whether or not you feel like this will ultimately go to the Supreme Court because they were deciding sort of on how things would happen with regard to the drug while this case plays out. Do you think it will eventually end up before it?
5: Absolutely. I mean, we we have ongoing uh, conflicts between um, what Judge Thomas Rice ordered, what the Fifth Circuit is likely to say. I mean, it, it may not. I don't know what the Fifth Circuit's going to do, uh, but it, it seems very likely that this will end back up at the U.S. Supreme Court And I think really the question is going to be whether or not uh, the Fifth Circuit pushes the US Supreme Court to do something in this case or tries to tee up a future challenge to abortion access. Something we haven't talked about yet, but I think that's very important, is that both the Fifth Circuit and uh, Judge Kazmarek focused on the Comstock Act, this 19th century anti-vice law that wasn't even really central to the FDA's authority. But both of them argued that the Comstock Act amounts to a de facto national ban on all abortion, not just mifepristone, and that as a result, the FDA could complain only so much about access to mifepristone changing. And you may wonder, why were they doing that? I think they're telegraphing that they think the Comstock Act is an enforceable way to create a federal ban on abortion. And I I wouldn't be surprised if we see that argument reemerge in the Fifth Circuit, uh, even if the Fifth Circuit doesn't think it's worthwhile to press the Supreme Court in this case, given that the justices may not be willing to go for it.
4: And just explain what the Comstock Act held.
5: Yeah, the, the Comstock, Comstock Act Comstock is Holdings. still is it? on the. Yeah, it's it's still on the books. It's an 1873 law that was originally passed to deal with what was considered obscene literature, which was an extraordinarily broad category at the time. It included things it had things like Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and The Canterbury Tales. It also uh, prohibited the mailing or receiving in the mail of contraception or abortion and really anything it subsequently was amended to be even broader, anything intended or adapted for abortion or contraception. If you stop and think about that, that's extraordinarily broad. That's much broader than just mifepristone or misoprostol. And for decades, courts had interpreted this much more narrowly, but we're seeing these federal judges saying, no, actually, this applies to any abortion drug or device to all abortions.
4: Hmm. Well, let me invite listeners to join the conversation. What are your questions about the the recent decisions, how the case is moving through the courts, your reactions to this attempt to curb abortion access through medication? And if you want to share if you yourself have had an experience using these medications for an abortion or for miscarriage care, you can feel free to do that as well at 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the Supreme Court's decision on Friday to preserve access to mifepristone for now while lower courts sort out challenges to the FDA's approval of the drug. And we're talking with Mary Ziegler, professor of law at UC Davis, also Shafali Luthra, health reporter who covers the intersection of gender and healthcare for the 19th, and we're talking with you, our listeners. What are your questions about this case challenging mifepristone, challenging the FDA's approval of it and the recent rulings, especially the recent one on Friday? What are your reactions to this attempt to curb abortion access through medication? And have you used medication for an abortion or miscarriage? Share your experience at 866 733 6786. Email us your questions or experiences at, forum at KQED.org or post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. This listener tweets, we can't have religious fanatics deciding on drug approvals. Many people in this country want to impose their religion on everyone. We are not a Christian theocracy. Can you just talk about that a little bit, Mary Ziegler, in terms of the implications more broadly, if this case does go to the point where the court finds that the FDA did was making a decision badly when it decided to allow Mifepristone and enable it to be as accessible as it is today.
5: Well, I think it would obviously set a precedent uh, that other drugs would be subject to challenge too, and that's especially because Mifepristone has been so studied, right? I mean, Mifepristone was being used in Europe for well over a decade before the United States saw the FDA approve it. And it's subject to more restrictions, including medically unnecessary restrictions than many drugs are. And so the FDA, if anything, has been very carefully scrutinizing mifepristone more than maybe absolutely medically necessary. And yet, if a judge is allowed to second guess that, I think the message will be that it's open season on other drugs that people find controversial for whatever reason, so long as those are FDA approved drugs. So we've seen fights about vaccines, not just COVID vaccines, but really any vaccines, some cancer therapies, drugs used in gender-affirming care, uh, PrEP, drugs used in HIV treatment. I mean, the the list goes on, and the message would be essentially that if you can find the right judge, who for whatever reason is unhappy with this drug, that you may be able to convince him that the FDA lacked the authority to approve it in the first place.
4: And Shafali, a lot of people feel like musoprasil is the next drug that could be attacked, especially by the anti-abortion movement. You, you touched on misoprostol a little bit earlier, but can you just remind us um, what misoprostol is and how it's used, but how it's also used for other things besides just um, aborting uh, and also for miscarriage treatment?
3: Exactly. And this is one of the reasons why mifepristone was, in fact, a more natural target for the movement than misoprostol was. Misoprostol, is technically not approved by the FDA for abortion specifically. It's used for treating things like stomach ulcers, but it is very effective in terminating pregnancies. And the gold standard is the the two drug regimen, right? The mifepristone, the 24 to 48 hour waiting period, and then the misoprostol. But in many countries around the world, especially those where mifepristone is too expensive or is unavailable, we have seen many people terminate their pregnancies using misoprostol only. And so, what what we had been expecting and what many clinics had been preparing for was if mifepristone, if access was blocked, if it was made far harder to provide to patients, would be a switch to mesoprostol only abortions, making that sort of the standard of care in abortion clinics in this country. It has downsides, it is very, very effective but not as effective as Misa, which means higher failure rate, even if it is a small failure rate. And it is more painful. I mean, there is a, just a higher risk of diarrhea, of, of bleeding, of cramps, of things that just make this not a not always the most pleasant process for someone to go through. But I think even as Mary is absolutely right, a case like this could open the door to removing approval for many other drugs, and I would add potentially some forms of contraception to that list, um, mesoprostol is just a slightly harder one to go after, but still very important to securing access to abortion.
4: Hmm. So Mary, the case right now, after this Supreme Court ruling, returns to the Fifth Circuit. And it has scheduled oral arguments, as I understand it, for the 17th of May. I mean, it is kind of amazing that we've had all of this happening before there's even been any hearing <laughs> over the merits. <laughs> um, but can you just talk a little bit about what you're, what we should expect in the Fifth Circuit?
5: Well, it's hard to say, right? I mean, I think if you read the Fifth Circuit's original opinion, the Fifth Circuit is the most conservative appellate court in the country. And the original opinion, to many of us, read sort of like a compromise offering or off-ramp to the Supreme Court, where the Fifth Circuit read Matthew Kasmerick's order and thought, OK, this is too far. I don't think the Supreme Court is going to go for this. So essentially, the, the Fifth Circuit offered up one idea to say to the court, well, you don't have to go as far as Kaczmarek, but you can still give the anti-abortion movement some kind of significant win. Uh, and gum up the works in terms of access to mipopristone. And the Supreme Court apparently didn't want to do that either. So the interesting question is whether the Fifth Circuit continues to press this issue and essentially say, no, we do think the FDA lacked approval and we are going to continue emphasizing the Comstock Act. Or if the Fifth Circuit thinks it's pointless given where the Supreme Court is on this and ultimately sides against the plaintiffs for some technical reason like standing, but telegraphs a path for the future for the anti-abortion movement involving something like the Comstock Act for example saying well this might not be the right case but we still think the Comstock Act means what the plaintiffs here think it means and not hmm. what the Biden administration has said and that means going forward if another anti-abortion litigator can find a better vehicle maybe that will be the case that breaks through at the Supreme Court but I- I'm not sure which of those paths the fifth Circuit's going to take and of course it will also depend on which panel is drawn, right? The Fifth Circuit, like most circuits, there'll be a panel draw. The composition of that panel in terms of how conservative or not it is will determine what we see. But if we did by some chance have a less conservative panel, you may eventually see a demand that the full Fifth Circuit hear it. I don't think you're likely to get a lasting result from a kind of unrepresentatively moderate Fifth Circuit panel. But whether they press the issue at the Supreme Court or not, I think will depend on what they think is the best for. they believe long-term.
4: And you mentioned, Mary, that there are other cases happening in federal court. Can you talk about the West Virginia case, the generic mifepristone manufacturer there who's bringing suit?
5: Yeah, so this has been a kind of the uh, abortion rights movement being on offense and essentially arguing that the FDA's views on mifepristone, that it's safe and effective, trump contrary state regulations that limit access to mifepristone. So those include more incremental restrictions like those from North Carolina, as well as outright bans like the one in West Virginia. So this deals with a legal issue called preemption, which essentially asks when the federal government is trying to sort of say, we're going to issue a policy for everyone. Everyone has to comply. And we ha- there's relatively little law on when FDA is preempting state policies. But this is, I think, an important piece of the puzzle because it means both that Uh, anti-abortion groups are having to play defense as well as offense, and because there are real questions about what FDA policy on mifepristone means for states. And that, of course, would be true when you have a Democrat in office, and potentially as well if you later had a Republican in office with different views on what uh, drug policy on mifepristone ought to be.
4: Hmm. Well, and also, Shafali, there was the Washington state ruling. There was the judge there that on the same night that the Texas judge ruled, basically said that uh, in 17 states in the District of Columbia, the FDA could not suspend approval of Mifepristone, kind of going, trying to go directly against the Texas judge to some degree. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
3: That case, I think, was incredibly interesting. Um, one point that Mary made earlier that's very important to that case is that The FDA's regulation of mifepristone has been arguably quite conservative. There are restrictions on distribution of the drug that are, according to medical experts, not actually necessary. And that is called this risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. That's part of how the FDA has determined who is allowed to prescribe mifepristone, what certification process they have to go through, things like that. This case, led by these 17 states plus D.C., all you know Democrat-run states plus D.C., not a state, um, was ta- taking an effort to expand access to nefipristone to sort of take us to a place where the drug is distributed more in line with what the science says, getting rid of some of these restrictions that are perhaps not needed. And for now, actually, if, if we think about it, the the injunction that would keep us at the status quo is in some ways a loss for those states because they were asking for expanded access as opposed to keeping things where they are. Mm -hmm. But in the context of potentially losing access to the drug entirely, it is, from a medical access standpoint, a better option for them.
4: Well, the Zisner writes, my sister had two miscarriages and two ectopic pregnancies, all treated with mifepristone. Any one of these events could have killed her without a treatment. If it's taken off the market, we need plans to reopen the septic wards while women with infections, or miscarriages, and bot surgical abortions used to go to die. Do you want to talk a little bit, Shefali, too, just in your reporting, about just the impact of the Curtailment of drugs that are available for abortions and miscarriage treatment—the kind of health impacts that they have, and and potential fear and and people having a chilling effect as well with these on the books in other states, even if it isn't specifically affecting, say, California.
3: I think this is really important. Um, we know from a vast body of public health research from the United States and from around the world, that when access to abortion is restricted, pregnancy-related deaths die. Like There is a very obvious relationship between these two patterns. And it's still quite early for us to see the implications of overturning row of states enforcing abortion bans. And right now, many people are able to travel. But we know, we have already begun hearing stories. I have talked to people myself who have not been able to access care that would be life-saving, that have had to fly out of state while afraid that they could die on the plane because they cannot get the medically approved, proper abortion care within their state. This is just part of a longer pattern, and the more we see these restrictions getting broader, having more of an impact, the greater the risk to people's health is. And one thing I will add about a state like California where access remains protected... The Mifepristone case helps us see ways in which the anti-abortion movement is looking to expand its reach beyond states where it has control of state government to places even where abortion appears protected. And one more other important element is that this is all really confusing, and many people don't realize that they have the right to access care, including Mifepristone, even in states where they can. And that confusion, some would argue, is part of the point, just trying to deter people from getting life-saving treatments that they otherwise should be entitled to.
4: Again, we're talking with Shafali Luthra, a health reporter for the 19th, an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting on gender, politics, and policy. And with Mary Ziegler, Professor of Law at UC Davis, her book is Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum, or by calling 866-733-6786. Mary, uh, Shafali brings up the broader goals of the anti-abortion movement, And I know this is what you studied very deeply in terms of, especially in your book, Dollars for Life, which we had you on for as well. But could you just talk about how this this attempt to curb access to abortion medication fits into the broader strategy of the anti-abortion movement?
5: Sure. Yeah. And I think it's so important to underscore that California is not safe from this sort of thing, right? I mean, if the Mifepristone suit had gone a different way or still goes a different way, California is not one of the liberal states that's part of the Washington suit. Yes. If the courts endorse a version of the Comstock Act and a Republican is in office, that will be enforceable in California too. And that's the idea the anti-abortion movement has, right? The movement from the 1960s onward has defined itself as a fight for The constitutional rights and personhood of the fetus or unborn child, which means that members of the movement think that abortion anywhere, regardless of what voters want or what voters state constitution says, that abortion is unconstitutional. And so that means the movement will not be happy until there's some sort of nationwide ban on abortion. I don't think in the near term we're likely to see any recognition of constitutional fetal personhood from voters, from Congress, or even from the US Supreme Court which turned down a Rhode Island case uh, just last year. I think instead you're seeing these attempts like the Mifepristone litigation and the revival of the Comstock Act in this and other cases that sort of reach the same result without asking anyone to think about the reasons why the anti-abortion movement wants that result. In other words, there's, there's not much front and center talk in these strategies about fetal rights Instead, there are other ways to get to a nationwide ban, really through the federal courts, right? Recognizing, I think, that American voters don't want that kind of ban, but imagining that some federal judges may be conservative enough to impose one. And so I think that means, on the one hand, obviously, it means that the federal courts are more important than ever, and there may need to be serious conversations about court reform. But it also means that for people in states like California that have made their wishes known on reproductive rights, that the 2024 election is going to be more important than ever. Because, of course, take Comstock, for example. Uh, If you have a Republican in office, they could enforce an interpretation of Comstock that's sweeping against people in California. A Democratic president wouldn't do that. A Democratic Congress might repeal the Comstock Act, which, after all, is just a statute. Uh, A Republican Congress wouldn't. You could imagine a Republican administration with a very different FDA changing the rules governing Mifepristone regardless of what the science says because primary voters and abortion opponents demand it. So as much as this may feel like it's taking place in federal courts where politics don't matter in the way we would like to think, um, that isn't true. <laughs> but I think the next election has higher stakes when it comes to uh, abortion in California than any in my lifetime and maybe any in, probably most listeners or maybe all listeners lifetimes.
4: Hmm. Well, Todd writes, I'm shocked by the lack of riots in the streets over the loss of bodily autonomy by half of our population. What about states' rights, privacy, Viagra and condoms? Your reaction to Todd's point about the lack of riots in the streets over the loss of bodily autonomy? Curious what you think, Shafali.
3: I don't think we should undersell just how dramatic the public response to the Dobbs decision and its fallout has been. This arguably was the defining issue of the 2022 midterms. This was the defining issue of the election we just saw in Wisconsin. Voters, when given the chance, are making their voices heard. We saw marches all last summer protesting the fall of Roe v. Wade, protesting what it means. And I think that there's a really good chance that this remains an essential issue in the 2024 elections. The public opinion shift on abortion is really dramatic. There is just far greater prioritization of this as an issue, and it may not look like our our vision of what activism and advocacy looks like, but it does have the real potential to change what policy is and to, depending on how votes go, to implement some of the policy that Mary was talking about, right? Repealing Comstock, even... Court reform even trying to pass some sort of law that would codify Roe v. Wade's protections.
4: We're looking at what is next for mifepristone, but also what is next for abortion access in the light of a lot of recent rulings and decisions that we've seen just in the last few weeks related to medication, abortion, and abortion access. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing your thoughts and questions to forum at kqed.org. And posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, tell us what your reactions are to this attempt to curb abortion access through medication, your questions about the case or the recent rulings, your experiences, or someone you know who has used medication abortion who has used medication for an abortion or for miscarriage or other reproductive care that is now in the crosshairs of the anti-abortion movement. We'll have more with Mary Ziegler, Professor of Law at UC Davis, and Shafali Luthra, health reporter for the 19th, after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Supreme Court decided Friday to preserve access to mifepristone for now, while lower courts sort out challenges to the FDA's approval of the drug, which means that reproductive rights still hang in the balance. We're talking about that with Mary Ziegler, professor of law at UC Davis, Shafali Luthra of the 19th, an independent nonprofit newsroom that reports on gender politics and policy. Shafali covers health for them. And we're talking with you, our listeners. And Lance writes... The Supreme Court ruled last year that abortion decisions were to be determined by each state. That was, of course, in Dobbs. Why are we not simply reminding the court of their 2022 decision and that the decision to use this pill should be determined by the states? That is the court's new precedent, and we have the right to expect this court to follow it. Mary Ziegler, it's a good point. I mean, even if you disagree with the fact that the Supreme Court put this back in the hands of the states, as they say, they should be appalled by a Texas judge deciding for a whole bunch of other states that they can't use mifepristone.
5: Yeah, and I mean, on top of that, right, uh, Justice Alito spent a lot of time talking about how it was a bad idea for courts to serve as medical review boards because they weren't competent to do so, which of course would be what the court had to do here too. Um, I mean, if you wanted to, it's possible to distinguish the cases because the court in Dobbs was saying there's nothing in the Constitution protecting abortion, and this is not a case about the Constitution. But of course, then there's just this simple matter of kind of politics and optics, which makes the court look hypocritical for intervening. The answer to the question there, I think, is also found in the Dobbs opinion, where, of course, the dissenters raised the point that were the court's overall row this quickly, simply because of a change in the partisan composition of the court, the court would be perceived as partisan itself and the court would lose legitimacy, to which Justice Alito responded, I'm not sure if that's true. And even if it is, we in the majority don't care because it's not our job to care about the legitimacy of the court. It's our job to do what we think is interpreting the law. And so if there were justices so inclined, you could imagine the same majority saying, well, you know, this may also damage our legitimacy, but we're not in the business of caring about our legitimacy. So I I don't think we can rule that out, Um, but I do think that this particular case had so many things wrong with it procedurally and substantively that it may still be a bridge too far. Right? I don't think there are necessarily a lot of bridges too far, but this court may still have looked at this case and thought, you know, even if we we claim not to care about looking bad, we we may still not be willing to go quite this far.
4: You know, I'm so struck by something you said, Mary Ziegler, I think it was in a piece for the LA Times, where you said that, <clears throat> like, like, even if this is a bridge too far, that you see the the Casmeric ruling, the Texas judges ruling, as a reminder, that far right federal judges are increasingly unconstrained, with little fear of being reversed by the Supreme Court. Can you just explain what you mean by that? It feels like we will be seeing a lot of really far-reaching, unprecedented, you know, decisions, interpretations of the law that we haven't seen before. Whether they're good or, or bad, but but or whether they're laughed out of court, actually being done and creating a whole bunch of havoc in the meantime. <laughs>
5: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean if anyone who's worked for a judge in a lower court as I have knows that you spend some time worrying about worrying about getting reversed. If you're not the final stop, you know that an appellate judge can come in and check your work and and change the outcome. And in the in the past, even conservative federal judges knew that they were not working in a vacuum and that quite possibly the US Supreme Court would check their work. And there have certainly been judges in the past as conservative as Matthew Kasmerick and maybe as opposed to abortion as Matthew Kaczmarek, but none of them would have written an opinion like that because it would have been counterproductive, right? It would have invited reversal by the U.S. Supreme Court. So the fact that we had that opinion tells you that Matthew Kaczmarek has no fear of getting reversed by the Supreme Court or really of much of anything else happening to him either. And that, that's a very different world. It used to be the case that whether it was institutional concerns about being a steward of the courts or political concerns just about maximizing the chance that your ruling would stand up during the appellate process, judges were a lot more cautious than at least Judge Kaczmarek was in this case. Now, of course, that may not work out for him, right? I mean, it may be that he is going to get reversed and that the US Supreme Court is still going to check his work, but I think it tells you that we're going to see conservative judges willing to throw a whole lot more at the wall to see what sticks than might have been the case in previous decades because they interpret our current U.S. Supreme Court majority to be so much more conservative than the ones that have come before. I mean, it's worth underscoring. We've had conservative majorities on the Supreme Court for decades now, but not conservative in the way this Supreme Court is. And that's been documented in a lot of measures by uh, scholars across a variety of disciplines.
4: Yes. Let me go to caller Colby in Berkeley. Hi, Colby. You're on.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having this conversation. You um, touched on this a little bit about the pro-choice movement being on the offense, and it feels like we're in a pretty scary time right now where um, courts are taking on the initiative to do medical review, which seems really terrifying and crazy to me. But it also kind of feels like as the pro-choice movement, we're kind of waiting for the anti-choice movement to make a move and then trying to be on the defense. So what can we as regular citizens and voters do to be more on the pro-choice offense? Shivali, I'll start with you.
4: Thanks, Colby.
3: I think this is a really interesting question. Um, And it's something that I think about a lot, talking to lawmakers, asking them what they do anticipate to be the strategy if they want to protect abortion rights. Part of it, I think, is that The anti-abortion movement is quite open at this point about what they are seeking. There has been a lot of talk about Comstock, as Mary pointed out. There is a lot of talk about efforts to restrict abortion nationwide. And in particular, we have seen anti-abortion organizations talk very explicitly about their desire to restrict access to medication abortion because they believe it's an existential threat to state-based abortion bans those seem like really natural avenues for advocacy and for organizing if you are interested in trying to advance abortion rights. And I do think the other thing to consider is that, I mean, presidential administrations have power and Congress in theory can have power. And it obviously depends on on the size of congressional majorities, but we're not actually that far away in the Senate or, if Democrats were to win back control of the House to a world where passing some kind of law protecting abortion rights would be conceivable, I think that often feels like it's just so out of reach, and yet it's not, and that feels like something that, if I were advising the anti or the abortion rights movement would be something to to look at closely.
4: What do you say, Mary Ziegler, as someone who studied the the strategy and the history of the anti abortion movement and how we got to where we are now as the strongest offense, as Colby put it?
5: Well, we, we're already seeing some of it unfold. Um, so there, there are efforts you can join, right? There, there's, If you're a lawyer, there's proactive litigation happening on Mifepristone. There's proactive litigation happening under a variety of state constitutions, including in surprising places like South Carolina, where a Supreme Court struck down a six-week abortion ban saying it violated that state's constitution. There are ballot initiative fights on the political side, um, as we've said. You know, six of the six ballot initiatives on uh, reproductive rights in 2022 went to supporters of abortion rights, including in states that are not very progressive in general, like Michigan, Kentucky, Montana, and Kansas. So there are ongoing efforts uh, in other states to get uh, ballot initiatives on before voters and also to prevent uh, Republican state legislators from making it harder for voters to actually weigh in. And even in deep red states like Tennessee, where there is no easy way for voters to initiate ballot initiatives, uh, there are new strategies emerging essentially to make arguments that appeal to Republicans on abortion. Uh, For example, saying you may not want abortion to be legal, but do you really want to spend massive amounts of taxpayer money? On the kind of surveillance and law enforcement it would take to actually have an enforceable criminal ban, essentially almost like a Hyde Amendment, right? A kind of ban on funding the criminal enforcement of abortion laws. So there there are a lot of interesting initiatives that are already ongoing. And I think an important point to underscore is that in popular politics, the abortion rights side has been winning. So popular politics is is a very promising place if you're a supporter of abortion rights to channel your efforts. And I think that's even true in Congress, even if we have a Congress that is not ready to pass an abortion rights measure directly, I think depending on what we hear from the Fifth Circuit and the US Supreme Court on Comstock, there could be a productive push to repeal the Comstock Act just by itself, right? With no other addressing of abortion rights, that would by itself be a huge benefit because if you think about what the Comstock Act is vis-a-vis abortion rights, and a variety of other things, it's sitting there like a loaded gun waiting for the right conservative judge to pick it up. Mm. And for uh, progressives to do, to remove that, I think both would be very doable because the Comstock Act goes so much further than anything even Republicans claim to be in favor of today. Yeah. Um, and because I think moderate Democrats could vote to get rid of it too. So I, I think there are any number of possible avenues that are still open.
4: Yeah, and I, I think it's, important to underscore your point about whether you're a supporter of abortion rights. Are these the kinds of things that you would do? Because I think it's an important distinction. I know plenty of people who are anti-abortion for themselves, but don't want to see uh, it. these types of curtailments to access or timing uh, for others uh, who are still very yeah. much supportive of abortion rights for others, right, whether yeah. or not they and, would and choose I mean, it for themselves. Yeah,
5: and, and even criminalization. I mean, because that's really what we're talking about here. I right. think the other really important point to underscore is that Uh, Some of you have followed, I'm sure recently, there was a story in, in Texas about a woman who was pregnant who wanted to drive in the HOV lane. And there have been other pregnant people who say that if fetal life has value, they deserve certain benefits. And there may be many people who think fetal life has profound value who don't then follow that by thinking that people have to be incarcerated for extended periods of time for providing access to abortion. That's what it means at the moment. And that's really what we're talking about.
4: Yes. Let me go to Aaron next. Hi, Aaron. You're on.
2: Hi. Um, I just wanted to comment. Um, I'm a family doctor in the Bay Area, and I uh, am a, an abortion provider. Uh, we do medical abortions for our patients and for others who seek us out through the Maya network, which is a network of physicians who provide this service. Um, and when we heard it rumored that the, about the court rulings that were going to come Take place. Uh, we responded to it in advance by buying a whole bunch of Misoprostol, so we're we're ready to go no matter what happens. Um, <laughs> and and we are, uh, you know, as I imagine other providers are too. You know, we're we're going to keep doing what we need to do to take care of our patients.
4: Yeah. Are you already seeing an increase, Aaron? I don't know if this is something you would be directly affected by, of uh, people seeking the procedure or needing. Your agency's help out of state because of the mifepristone fears.
2: Um, yes, we've seen some. I mean, we've seen patients who have moved to California, um, who've come to California. We're only licensed to provide this, you know, provide medical care to patients who are in California. But uh, if somebody comes to California, we'll take care of them, and you know, and and we have seen. A number of cases. I don't know that it's changed dramatically since the this ruling, since it didn't really happen for very long
6: in effect. Oh,
2: but, right. but, no. but we have, se- but we have seen, you know, from the beginning, we've seen some people from states where there's greater restrictions who have sought us out, mm. um, and we're not, you know, we're not an abortion clinic. We're a primary care clinic, right. Um, right. and this is just part of what we do is primary care
4: yeah as as basic reproductive care thank you Aaron and uh, let me remind listeners you're listening to forum I'm Mina Kim um let me go next to caller Wendy Hi Wendy you're on
6: hi um I really appreciate your very um, qualified guests and all the excellent points people have been making um when I think about the sound bites that all of us get every day from whatever media we listen to, um, I'm interested in including Viagra in the discussion about um, FDA approval of a drug. Um, everything that, has, that is typically mentioned about how this could affect approval and continued approval of things like cancer treatments, uh, HIV treatments, um, nothing particularly targets males. and. I would like to see the possibility of Viagra approval being overturned as part of the regular conversation on media, so that um, it's possible for men to get the fear of what could happen to their personal liberty um, put into them. So I'm I'm trying to promote this myself, but I'm uh, also interested in it, interested in it becoming. Uh, part of the media soundbite that we hear all the time about this current issue. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, when it comes to the Comstock Act and uh, the, uh, the illegality of, of interstate shipping of fashions, that would apply to a lot more than Pristone. It would apply to hangers. It would apply to Lysol that has been used as an abortive fashion, usually resulting in the death of the woman trying to creates, um, well, trying to end your pregnancy, um, it would pertain to a lot of things. It could even, I know this is going to sound crazy, but it could even pertain to guns because what better way to you know, end your pregnancy than kill yourself? So I, I well, think the illogic of what's being proposed can easily be appreciated by some people, but the dangers of personal freedoms being eliminated in many, many regards, not just abortion, um, needs to be... A wider topic, well, Thank Wendy,
4: you. yeah, thanks. Let me just quickly get Mary Ziegler's reaction because you've been talking about the Comstock Act and how broad it is Wendy is bringing up certain things like this. Is that conceivable?
5: Mary well, Ziegler? yeah, I mean the if you take the language of the Comstock Act without any kind of qualification, it really is broad because it's not just drugs intended for abortion, right, which would mean kind of what we conventionally think of as abortion drugs. And maybe, um, as Shafali was saying, some contraceptives that certain conservatives believe to be abortifacient drugs but it says drugs adapted for abortion or devices adapted for abortion which could include drugs like methotrexate or you know anything used in abortion like scalpels now do i think that any republican administration would enforce the comstock that broadly so no one could mail hangers or scalpels or surgical gloves? No, I don't, right? Because ultimately, the Supreme Court or any conservative court can only tell you what how they interpret the Comstock Act. They don't have law enforcement to enforce it. But if that's how broadly the federal courts are going to interpret Comstock, it would mean a Republican administration could have pretty broad discretion about how to enforce that criminal prohibition. So I, I do think ultimately that if the federal courts Say that's what Comstock means. Comstock repeal is going to become even more urgent. And I think it's ultimately a quite good idea, really, regardless of what the federal courts say at the moment, because they could say something similar down the road.
4: Well, Marsha writes, many of the drugs politicians seek to end access to provide so many other health benefits for women. This is another example of the lack of focus on women's health care. Ali tweets, this case boils down to, are non-medical people qualified to second-guess the FDA. And Pamela writes, the far right has only just begun in their suppression of women's rights. First, it's the right to make decisions about their own bodies, and it will ultimately be voting rights. This issue around the abortion pill demonstrates how the far right wants to run the country. Elected officials don't really have a say. It's now all in the hands of the judges. And the far right and corrupt Supreme Court, mark my words, this is about control. These MAGA subscribers are anti-women. Lots of strong feelings from our listeners quickly Shafali Luthra in the meantime California has done what to try to enable abortion access one is to stockpile misoprostol as i understand it
3: yes california has stockpiled misoprostol the the other drug correct used in medication abortions and the idea there was to ensure that if mifepristone were taken off the market that there would be a viable alternative California has also been passing other legislation as well to try and protect abortion access in the state, for instance, trying to pass or actually succeeding in passing what's called a shield law, right? This state law that would protect doctors as long as they provide abortion care within their state. I think the point that that we still see, of course, is that, I mean, all of these, these are stopgaps. And if there were to be a federal abortion ban or what we've talked about, it would be yeah. hard to see how they stand up.
4: Shafali Luther, Mary Ziegler, thank you both. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment of Forum. I am a kim.
1: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.